0: Okay, if you could stand for the reading of God's word. We are returning to Jonah, as Jonah is returning to Nineveh. <laughs> so we're in Jonah uh, chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the, pro- the proclamation he issued to Nineveh, the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth let everyone call urgently on God let them give up their evil ways and their violence who knows God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we all so that we will not perish When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways he relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened This is God's word You may be seated
1: This is perhaps The Greatest Revival of spiritual life And faith in God You know Christ is not named here but As they anticipate his coming, he is preached. um, And the greatest sweep, the greatest mass, no doubt, in human history, arguably. The Bible says at the end of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, that 120,000 people occupied this one city. Scripture says in the New Testament, and right here, that this entire city... Man, man, woman, and child came to faith in the Lord. The most amazing display of, of spiritual awakening and revival that we have on record perhaps in all of human history. There's this one line that, that for me um, is just astounding to me. And the Ninevites believed God. Just one quick sentence, really simple. The Ninevites believed God. Oh, how our lives would change if we simply would do this. This one simple thing, that when God speaks his truth, not our truth, his truth, we say yes and not no. I don't know that there's a more remarkable statement in all the Bible than this one. That 120,000 people, Ninevites, believe God. So many of us, I think many of us in this room today, including myself, know Christ, know God, know His saving power. Yet we continually d- doubt Him every day. Where is Bride? Where is Elect? Where are the ones He has called? justified, that means he's made us right with him by forgiving us our sins glorified, what that means is that he promises us to raise us from the dead when Christ appears and give us a perfect body unable to sin that will live forever in his glory that's who we are and we know it, yet we doubt but these Ninevites, these cruel, godless folk believed God They're not the ones that should believe God, right? We're the ones that should believe God. Jonah's the one that should believe God. But the Ninevites challenge us thousands of years after the fact with their simple faith in God. There it is. And it will never be forgotten. Jesus even said that when I come, the Ninevites will judge this generation because they believed at the preaching of Jonah and someone's greater than Jonah preaching to you and you deny it. I want to I remind you who the Ninevites are. These are rough people. <laughs> These are the kind of people that we would go to war with, that we would drop bombs on, If we heard about these sorts of atrocities, nations around the world wouldn't sleep until they were wiped off the map. King Sennacherib was arguably the most brutal of Assyrian kings, and this is what he writes. He says, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made... The contents of their gullets and their entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds, those are horses, my prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. These are folks that made sport of skinning people alive. These are, these are people that cut off hands and feet, noses and eyes, and then skinned you when they were done. By the way, do you know what was illegal in Nineveh? Abortion. How did that one slip through? And it, does, it doesn't here. These are their heroes. These are the Ninevites' heroes, Sennacherib, and these soldiers that, that raced the world's end to destroy it so that they could conquer and be the greatest. These are the ones that they celebrate. These are the ones that they made monuments out of. How on earth is this in the Bible? Yet the Ninevites believed God. Their sins, though they were red as scarlet, by the promise of God, were made white as snow. The most evil of people, the most heinous of people, were forgiven. Isn't that incredible? And the Ninevites believed God. It, it's dramatically similar. If you remember the Book of Romans, in chapter four, verse three, what does it say about Abraham? And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God forgives the Ninevites because they believed him. Friends, do you believe him? Do you believe God? I hesitate and I tremble to say that oftentimes I don't. I don't trust him. I don't trust him with my life. I don't trust him with my desires. I make demands on him. I have the the audacity to think that somehow I am a better, uh, not as great a sinner, I'm a better sinner than these Ninevites. Somehow I deserve him, and they don't. Last time we spoke from Jonah, we discussed the importance of the power of the Spirit, of God's Spirit in our proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God is sort of like what opens our eyes when we preach the good news to people when we preach it to each other, that inclination in us to say yes and to believe him was brought about by the supernatural power of God himself. We noted that the the power that the spirit has can create this sort of mass revival where immense amounts of people that we would never expect to believe in Jesus Christ will. And isn't that what we need today? Oh, we might not be as gruesome. We might not be as violent. uh, But we have educated ourselves into insanity. But we can't even believe a simple thing like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How do we know that God's Spirit is awakening us and awakening people around us? What happens... In revival, this friends, oh, this is so important because revival is, is not just something that happens to a lot of people out there, it happens first in us. It happened in Jonah's heart first, it happens to one, and then to two, and then to a hundred. Right? How do we know when God is awakening us that we, we, we're starting to see what is true versus what is false? What happens? In a revival, it's not just the ability to gather a large crowd. We've done that here to some success. You know, we can have events and we can draw hundreds of people, but you know what? We don't want hundreds of people to come just so that we can give them an Easter egg. We want them to know Jesus Christ. We want them to read those Bibles that we give to them. We want to share our faith with them. That's why we do this. We want to get to know their names so that we can pray for them so that we can be generous to them and not just share Christ with our lips, but show it with our lives. We're not here to just gather amongst ourselves and make each other feel good. Jesus said, I have made you fishers of men. Where's our fishing poles? You see, friends, we have aunts and uncles and cousins that if they were to die, this moment would be separated from God forever because of sin. That is the message, it's the hard message of Scripture, but it's true. And God has put a fishing pole in your hand and in mine so that they would know him. How do we know when the Spirit is giving life? I'd imagine that the, the women who were sort of, at the time, gathering around the wells of Nineveh had no idea what was about to happen. They would greet Jonah at that city who's this little guy from israel what's he want not knowing that it wasn't just jonah that showed up but the power of god you see if jonah just shows up business is usual but when god shows up not so much the spirit was about to change everything today they're getting water from the well tomorrow they're weeping tears of repentance and covering themselves in ash and dirt. You know, this, that, that sort of reminds me like the woman at the well, remember that Jesus met? She's just doing her chores. She needs some water. She probably has to water her camel. so she shows up doing her chores, maybe just kind of living. The, the Bible seems to indicate she's just living a life the way that she wants to live it, a life of self-gratification, of self-denial, Not really knowing the sorts of trouble that she's in, that she separated from God, without the slightest indication of even desiring to be right with God. We get no hint of this at all. But then suddenly the Son of Man shows up. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, speaks, and she is undone. Do you remember when that happened to you, friend? When Jesus Christ spoke your name? And you knew it wasn't just some short Israelite named Jonah speaking to you, that God had opened heaven's treasure and spoke to you Himself. You remember that? I do. I was I was beside a campfire, fifteen years old. I don't even remember who the guy was. It doesn't even matter who he was. What matters is that Jesus Christ's Spirit showed up and opened my eyes that day. You remember that? You know what else he did that day? He put in my hand his word in the left and a fishing pole in the right. It's our mission. The son of man shows up and God's spirit carries his word to her heart. You don't just, you're right, you don't have a husband, you have seven. Calls her out big time. In other words, you are breaking the law of God. Just call it like introduction, first meeting. Have you ever done that before? Hey, by the way, I know what you did last summer. Right? Like we don't, we, we generally don't do that. And maybe, listen, I'm not saying to start doing it like that. Right? Start sharing Christ like that. But I am saying this, that there comes a point when the gospel is shared that, that it undoes us. It exposes us. And we know, we stand naked and guilty before God. So here she is doing her daily routine. The son of man shows up because he loves her and wants to rescue her. God's spirit carries his word to her heart. is with a sharp dagger and pricks her conscience and identifies her greatest need that's to be right with God. It's not another husband. right? This biblical account in Jonah shows us what happens... When we have a genuine spiritual experience, when we are revived, when we are born again, that's the Bible language. How do we know we are saved? What happens? What happens in revival? There are four things in this passage that we can see clearly illumination, conviction, grief, and repentant faith. Illumination, conviction, grief, and repentant faith, they're all there. These are the indications of life, okay? The saved person, the spiritually alive person will always receive these gifts from God. This is what happens when he shows up and we see him for the first time. So let's talk about illumination. Jonah arrives on the scene and he tells them the truth, God's truth, not our truth. Tell me your truth, right? We hear that a lot nowadays. What's your truth? How about this? What's God's truth? Because my truth is so deceptive. It leads me astray. It's why I'm in the mess that I'm in. Right? How many people would just admit that? Jonah arrives on the scene and tells them God's truth in one sentence. It doesn't require a lot of words. We said this before. Because of their sin, in 40 days' time, they would be completely wiped off the map of human existence and separated from God forever. This is a holy God showing up, about to take account. And that's not the way we describe God in our Western culture. God is good, and God is nice. God God is not just. He doesn't deal with sin. He forgives all of us. That's sort of like the description of most people that we have of God. And it's kind of true. That's why it's tricky. But it's not all true. Because the reality is is God is a just God. When we open scripture, we realize that he doesn't play games with sin. That sin is costly. And that he is the judge of sin. That all sin is, is the violation of his nature, his law, who he is. He's made us like him, and we decide we're not going to be like him. So it's a violation of who he is and who we are as his creation And a holy God and a righteous God is what we see all throughout Scripture, and we see this very clearly here. He is on his way to Nineveh, and his sword is sharp, and he is ready to do business and to take a reckoning. Because of their sin in 40 days' time, Jonah says, you will be destroyed. Now, I'm just trying to imagine Remember who he's talking to. These are Ninevites. These are cruel, nasty people. Okay? Why on earth didn't they just laugh him out of the city? Right? Like, dude, you know what we do to people like you? Where are his big toes? Right? And where's our big toe remover? Come on, people. Pass it over here. We got to take care of this guy. This is what they always did to people, other foreign nations, that would dare to even mess with them. That's what the kings would do. That's what their armies would do. That's what the people accepted. But this one little Jew from Israel shows up with a sentence, and they drop to their knees in tears and repentance. This is not what should be happening, but it is what happened. You want to know why? Because this is illumination. This is what God's Spirit has the power to do to any person with three words or 300 words. When the spirit gets behind the the message of salvation, people respond. And it doesn't matter how how much they believe in evolution or how much they think there isn't a God or how how archaic they think we all are. The reality is when God's spirit moves, tongues of fire fall down and people listen and believe. Do not be afraid, only believe. Believe. Do you believe that? Or, we have, or, or are we leading defeated? As if to say, no one's going to listen to this. No one's going to believe. It's too hard out there. Friends, I don't know a harder place than Nineveh. And it wasn't too hard for God there. Amen? In a sudden supernatural flash of light brought on by God's spirit, they see themselves... For who they really were in God's presence. They were blind and now they see. That's illumination. These formerly saw themselves as champions and heroes, as strong Dr. Erika Billabitreau, professor of Near Eastern Archaeology at Vienna University, explains that the two principal tasks, quote, of an Assyrian king, were to engage in military exploits and to erect public buildings. Both of these tasks, underline this, were regarded as religious duties. In other words, their mass extinction of population was issued to them by their god. So their cutting off people's limbs and hands and feet and skinning them and throwing them into heaps of piles was an act of worship for them. To a Ninevite, their violence was sanctioned by the gods. It was an act of worship, yet in an instant, their their, their religious belief system and their trust in their false gods had completely changed with one sentence. Do not be afraid, only believe. I will tell you what to say. Remember this? You go, and I'll tell you what to say. Don't worry about it, because the Spirit of God is more powerful than the human mind. The only explanation for this dramatic conversion is that God had shined light on their darkness. Jesus likened this to be born again. So now that you're born, before you're born, you don't exist. You don't think. There's darkness. There's no awareness. There's no life. Jesus said, you want to enter my kingdom, you need to be born again. You need the Holy Spirit to breathe life into you. Jesus so often likens this to the blind receiving sight. You can't see it. You don't know it. You laugh at it. How many people heard the gospel a hundred times before they were saved and it didn't make any sense to them? It just was like that Charlie Brown teacher. Wah, That's nice. Okay, there's a God one day. Where's my beer? and Let's go watch some football. Right? That's how we respond. But one day, all of a sudden, for some reason, in a way completely unexpected, light shines. And you get it. You realize that you've sinned against God, and you deserve nothing but his justice and punishment for it and separation for it. And rather than getting that, he gives you Jesus, his life and forgiveness and the death of Christ. The only explanation for that is the illumination that God's Spirit brings. The Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you want to write that down? That Satan is the god of this world, and he blinds the minds of those outside of faith in Jesus Christ. They're blinded by a demonic supernatural power. Darkness needs illumination. In other words, we don't just come to know that Jesus is Lord because we figured it out we come to know that he is lord because the spirit gave us grace and he opened our eyes to see him it requires the power of god to lift that veil let's read about that in second corinthians 3 it says this paul says their minds were made dull these are these are those outside of faith in jesus christ right their minds were made dull for to this day the veil remains Something blocking their sight so they can't see. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it removed. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let me explain to you what this is saying. You can read the Bible with a veil in front of your face, and you won't see how desperately lost you are. Maybe you'll just get some advice for a better marriage or to be happier in your life. You'll get that out of it but it won't break you. It won't drive you to your knees. You won't see how greatly lost you have become because of sin. You won't see your greatest need to be reconciled to God. The Bible is just a fix-it tool for your material life. See, there's a veil in front of your eyes, and what Paul says is until faith in Christ, that veil remains. The Bible isn't powerful to us until that veil is removed. That's illumination. In John chapter 1, Jesus is life, and that life was the light of mankind. Jesus is the illumination. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In other words, when light shows up, darkness doesn't win. It, it spells it away. It runs away. You turn the lights on, it's not dark. It's impossible to be dark when there's a light on. So, friends, Jesus is the illumination. He is the reality. He is your truth. That all is not okay with us. The purpose of your life is not to get married or to make money. That can't satisfy your broken heart. Only Jesus can. When those lights turn off, you can't unturn them off. And you know how much you need them. Prior to knowing Jesus, though we deal with a sense of dissatisfaction and emptiness... The general feeling is that, well, I think things will probably just work out okay. We're mostly good. Things are all right. Everyone goes to a better place, right, when they die. That's what everyone says. But to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ unties that knot. It completely contradicts all of that. And we realize that we are in desperate trouble. That without God's saving forgiveness, we will be forever separated from him in death when God's spirit removes the veil it changes everything and it tells us the truth about ourselves and about who God is everything we loved and cherished all of our virtues, all of our gods were actually death and darkness that God is holy and we are not when Jonah spoke those simple words 40 days from now you'll be overthrown the Ninevites were completely unraveled it changed everything they understood that they had been believing a lie and that this unassuming man from Israel was not the one speaking because it doesn't say they believed Jonah they believed God isn't it what it says prior they had believed their gods they had they had believed their inner voice they were proud of their violence but now They turned from all of it and cried out to the only one who could save them and give them mercy. Friend, if you are to be confident that you are saved, that you have eternal life, there must be this illumination, this lifting of the veil by which we cry out to Christ for salvation and say in Luke 18, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? Because Jesus said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish that's the words of the gospel isn't that ironic because so many people say oh you know the Old Testament that's a death and judgment well what about this Jesus said this unless you repent you will likewise perish Jesus Jesus wasn't a softy read him see he preached the same thing Jonah preached in 40 days time the master is coming complete reversal from a blind and misguided sense that they were okay, that they were safe, to the reality that they had sinned against God and they were destined for his disaster. Open the eyes of the Gentiles, Paul prayed. Unlift the veil so that they can have your light. That's illumination. Second, conviction. You guys ready? By conviction, I don't so much mean grief, Or responsibility that sometimes we take when we make mistakes, we feel convicted, right? That's not what I mean. I mean more, we become convinced. There's like a conviction that something is true, right? We become absolutely certain. This is a product, by the way, of illumination. When the lights turn on, there are chairs in the room. I can't deny that. There are people looking at me. When the lights are off, I don't know what the heck's going on, right? So when illumination happens, we become convicted or convinced of the of the true nature of our spiritual condition, and we see this happen to the Ninevites. It says, "And the people of Nineveh believed God." It's a simple statement, but what happened is the lights turned on. They couldn't deny the reality because they saw it for the first time. So they believed him. In other words, they didn't believe their hearts. They didn't believe their guts. They didn't believe their cultures or their kings. And they didn't even believe Jonah. Because it says the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. They were convinced that he was right and everyone else was wrong. (laughs) That is absolutely impossible without God's help. To believe him and not all the other voices around us and even the ones in us. They were convinced that they had heard God's voice, that they were in spiritual danger, and that they needed to beg Him for His mercy. They weren't simply concerned about not being a country anymore, about the Babylonians coming in and destroying them. They were talking to God now. They understood that this was a divine judgment, not just human peril. You see the difference? They weren't simply concerned about being conquered as a nation, but being conquered by God. They were in spiritual danger and they knew it. They weren't concerned about some marauding army but they were concerned about a marauding God who would not be mocked. He was on his way and his sword was sharpened and he was ready. They were no longer under their own rules but they were now under the scrutiny of a holy God. They were convinced that he was true and real and right. And they didn't deny him. They didn't claim innocence. Oh, so I didn't know. And they didn't blame everyone else around them. They knew what they had done and took responsibility. That's conviction. John chapter 16. And he, when he comes, will convict the world of re- regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the Holy Spirit's power. This is what he does when he shows up. We become convinced of our own sin, of God's righteousness, and the impending judgment that is coming. That's what the Holy Spirit does when He gives us eyes to see. That's God's illumination convicting or convincing us of the true nature of things that God is holy and that we are not and that it's not His fault. It's ours. And the only right outcome. Is for us to be destroyed by the holiness of God. That's the only righteous thing for Him to do is is to end us. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit convicts us of. That sounds kind of bleak, right? It's rough. But revival isn't just a an awareness of our lostness, but of the mercy of God and the graciousness He provides. When he revives us, when he revives a city or a nation, he does so through this convincing, this convicting that he is real and true and right. And it leads to what we see here, number three, grief. Illumination, conviction, grief. One pastor called it mourning, spiritual mourning. What do the people do? They declare a fast and they put on sackcloth and ashes. I want you to consider the king. Sort of zero in now until like, there's a lot of things going on in Jonah chapter 3, but let's focus a spotlight on the king of Nineveh. Right? What do you think this dude's going to do? What, is, what would his fathers have done? We know what they would have done. They would have cut off this guy's hands and feet. They would have fed him to lions. They would have cut his head off and put it in the the town square for everyone to see. That's what his fathers would have done. Let's read what this king does. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. Listen to these words. Listen to what he does. He gets out of his throne. He rose from his throne. He takes off his royal robes and puts on sackcloth. And ashes and sits down in the dust isn't that incredible former kings never would have gotten out of their royal chair they never would have taken off their royal robes they were in charge they were the authority these were the things that made them great in the eyes of man These are the things that prove that we're righteous. Right? You see? In other words, these are the things that prove that God is on our side. You see, what's your royal robe, friend? What do we think makes God happy with us? Oh, that third stimulus check is coming, baby. God must be smiling on me. I'm going to buy a ski jet. Success, prosperity, happy kids, wife. I've never been divorced like that person. This is our royal robes. They make us right with God. They make us great in our own eyes or in the eyes of man. You see what I'm getting at here? What does this guy do? He says, everything that I think makes me deserve God is worth nothing. And he takes it off. And he covers himself in ashes. We need to start disrobing Not here, please. (laughs) We need to start disrobing, Identifying. What do I think makes me acceptable to God? Because friends, we are sinners, lost. And if we are relying on our robes instead of Jesus' robes, we are in in for a heap of trouble. So this king takes off his royal robes, everything that he thought made him great. Jesus said to that rich man, this one thing you lack, Sell all your possessions and follow me. You see, that guy, he was wearing the robe of wealth. This is what makes me right with you to begin with. I'm not taking this off. You see, this king knew that he was nothing in God's presence. That he was not the king in God's presence because God was the king. The Lord alone is king. And this humility by the way, is completely out of character, and the only explanation is that the bright light of illumination and conviction set grief in his heart to know the truth, and it set him free. See? Luke chapter 18. We see this happening very clearly. The Pharisees stood. Oh, look at my royal robes. Look at how wonderful they are. I just ironed them. And he began praying this in regard to himself. Uh, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Those swindlers and crooked adulterers, or even like this tax collector, because I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, people in spiritual danger always believe themselves not to be. I'll say that again because it's important. People in spiritual danger always believe themselves not to be. That is a function of their blindness. That was a function of our blindness. Before you knew Christ, you were fine, right? You were, you were likely to make it to heaven, probably purgatory if you were Catholic. Wherever you were going, it was going to be okay, though. Isn't that sort of what you thought? But this, in this ironic twist of fate, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you realize you're doomed, that you're not, that you're separate from God. You see, that's what happens. He he convicts us, and then there's this grief that comes over us because we know the truth. Unsaved people, people who remain in the condemnation of sin, never see themselves as condemned. They pray like the Pharisee. Jesus says, however, saved people always see themselves as undeserving of salvation. You know... That you have come to life in Christ Because you know you don't deserve life in Christ That's what's going on You see They know they've fallen short of his love And and aren't right with him They know that unless he's merciful That they're doomed They are convinced that no one else is to blame But themselves The king of Assyria Was completely undone by the holiness of God. This was a proud potentate, wasn't it? He was very proud of himself, his royal robes. But he removed from his body what he formerly believed made him great. He took him off. And he clothed himself with the filth of the earth. And you know what God did to that man? He washed him clean, whiter than snow, and put on robes of righteousness, the robes of Jesus Christ. And this king is going to be in heaven forever and ever, and you're going to get to meet him one day. And you're going to ask him, how on earth did you believe this when nothing around you was affirming it to be true? And his answer is going to be the same as yours and mine, the grace of God. He became truly sorry for his sin, and he shared that blessing that we read about that Paul talks about in the book of 2 Corinthians, a godly grief that produces repentance leading to salvation, right? When God gives spiritual life and renewal to a church and a community, he does it through illumination, through conviction, and the grief of the guilt of sin. Salvation comes no other way but this way. But not a grief leading to despair, rather to repentant faith bringing life. So let's close with this. Repentant faith. The people of Nineveh had turned from their sin and trusted in God to be merciful. But let people, it says, and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil way and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They were banking on God's mercy. And even that's a miracle because their gods were not merciful. Who told them that God is merciful? All of their theology told them the opposite. That God isn't merciful. That when you take him off, you're dead. He doesn't forgive you. And, and, and he, he would never pay for his sin, for your sin for you. You're toast, man. They never would have known this on their own unless it was for the Spirit of God bringing light to it. That the, the, the God that we think exists isn't real. The one that is real is the one speaking to us through his word. That he is just, yes, he is just, but oh, he is merciful. And he is gracious. He is so just that we would die in our sin for it, but he is so merciful that he would redirect it and put it on Jesus instead. Isn't that wonderful news? So our God is not just a wuss. He's not a wuss. We don't just all get away with anything that we want to, right? But he's also not this angry God that no one saved, right? He doesn't care about any of us so that no, none of us have life. See, he's he's neither of those things. He is both just and gracious. That's who he is. They were banking on God, God's mercy. It's another miracle because their gods weren't merciful. Their theological framework should not have led them to think that God might be merciful to them. This is the illumination of God's Spirit revealing to them that God is, yes, holy, but he's also abounding in loving kindness, that he is slow to anger, eager to forgive. Perhaps the God of Israel would give them mercy in ways that their gods never would, in ways that they never did. And the Ninevites believed God. Perhaps he will be merciful, and he was. And it was credited to them as righteousness. This mass of humanity was made right with God, not by their determination to be good, to not cut noses off anymore, but or by satisfying God's justice by doing good deeds, but by trusting that he would have mercy on them. That's what it says. Before they turned from their sin, they believed that God would be merciful. See? That's repentant faith. Genuine faith always turns from sin, but it doesn't rely on the turning from sin to save you. Does that make sense? It relies on the mercy of God for it. It means that we have come to understand the guilt of our own sin before God, the problem of it, the death of it, and in our desire to be rid of it, rely on his unmerited favor to forgive us of it. What does it say in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18? Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make you white as snow. I will separate from... You all your sins as far as the east is from the west in Psalm 103:12 and in Micah chapter seven. Let's not forget this one: I will throw away all your sins into the deepest sea, and will remember them no more. Isn't that wonderful? And God relented, and the disaster did not come. One hundred twenty thousand souls, men, women, and children. Ninevites, formerly very wicked, evil people, will occupy the eternal kingdom by grace through faith. Will you? And friends, if you already have had grace put on you through faith in Jesus Christ, will you renew your faith again? Will you believe in the God who can do such things like this when his people, like Jonah, are simply obedient to trust him and proclaim the good news to those who need it? That's revival, the light of illumination, exposing the seriousness of our problem, the tragic plight of death that we brought on by the guilt of our own sin, yet the miracle of a God who who will, quote, relent from the disaster. That's great. That's salvation. A God who relents from the disaster. And he will not do it. Rather, He puts it on Jesus. That disaster that the Ninevites were supposed to get, someone got it. It wasn't them, though. It was Jesus Christ. Because God is holy and just. And oh, friends, isn't that true of all of us? God relented from our disaster because Jesus took it in our place. See, friends, that's what Easter is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, restoring us to a right relationship with God and giving you life again. He puts it on Jesus. The tear-soaked eyes of the penitent sinner trusting in Christ for life in exchange for his own will find it. Friends, for this life, To come to those around us, our neighbors, our friends, our family, we must know it ourselves. We must continually consecrate ourselves. Sell all of our possessions, disrobe, so that we're his, that it's his will and not our own, that we live for each day. You see? The Welsh have a saying, they say, bend the church and save the people. Mm-hmm. Bend. like, Make it suffer. Stretch it. Test it. And what happens when you do that with God's people, like Jonah was right, he was bent in the belly of that fish. What happens is we begin to give up on our will and live each day for his will. We sell it. We sell our possessions. And what happens in that bending God starts doing miracles and starts saving people. That's the kind of church I want to be this year and every year. And I hope you do too. I want to believe God and fear not. Amen? Amen. So let's be illuminated with light, convinced that our will must die and we must submit to his, grieve our sin and depend on his mercy and he'll give it to us. And the light will shine like the noonday. Amen? Come on, let's pray. God, the Ninevites believed you. I pray that we would too. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, now's the time. Now's the time. He loves you. Oh, friend, confess to him, God, I've sinned against you, and you're holy. But you desire my life. You want to put that on Christ instead of me. The death that I carry should be away from me. You've made it possible Jesus died for you, friend. Now's the time to admit it, to accept it. Let the light of God's word shine on you finally. Come to him. Cry out, God, I'm a sinner. Save me. Have mercy on me. I know that you will because you sent your son. You promised it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, you don't need to perish, friend. Come to faith in Jesus Christ and believe him. And if that's happening, if, if God's spirit is illuminating your heart, you're putting that faith in Jesus, would you just share it with me afterwards? Call me, email me, talk to me. I want to rejoice with you and pray with you. God, for the rest of us, would you give us faith? Every day, would, would you help us to surrender our will to yours? and trust you that we would carry your Bible in our left hand and a fishing pole in our right. We love you so much, and we thank you for your abundant grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen.